We're going to hear from uh, Lamentations chapter 3 again. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn to Lamentations 3? So if you open your Bible in the middle and go forward quickly through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, and if you get to Ezekiel, you've gone a little bit too far because Lamentations is between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 39. And uh, if you'd like to stand while we're reading, you're welcome to do so. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny a man his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should any living man complain 
when punished for his sins. Lamentations 3 has just told us God's judgment on sin is dreadful, but his mercy is greater. And so we're going to sing his mercy is more. Let's stay sitting down and sing. Could remember no wrongs we had done. Omniscience, all knowing, he comes not less song. Thrown into a sea without blood and emotion. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. See you. 
I've been reading this book recently. I don't know if you can see it. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I don't know if you've come across it. It's been getting a lot of good reviews from various quarters. Um, I didn't like it at first, actually, but I now think it's brilliant, and I've just started rereading it. I finished it last week, and I just started again straight away to read it again. Gentle and Lowly. It says underneath as a sort of subtitle, The Heart of Christ. For sinners and suffering. It's all about what's the heart of Christ like. Now, what do you think Christ's heart is like? What do you think God's character is at the deepest level? What do you think about that? Christ's heart for you, God's character, not just at church on a Sunday, but when you've sinned again on a Monday. What do you think is God's attitude to you? Not when the sun is shining and uh, you're enjoying the hymns at church, but when your life is going through a storm and, and you see that the world is so full of suffering. What do you think God's character is like, his attitude? What do you think Christ's heart towards people is like? My aim this evening is that we get confidence in God's character. And at the same time, face up to suffering and evil in the world. And we manage to be realistic about both. We're in a topical series in Lamentations. We're not going through chapter by chapter, but we're in a topical series. We've had the need for Lamentations and then the anguish in Lamentations. And today is the comfort. Sorry, it was the anguish of Lamentations. Today's the comfort in Lamentations. And we are sticking with one chapter. Would you turn, please, to Lamentations chapter 3? Lamentations chapter 3. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, but we're going to look at some of the comfort in this chapter. Now, I don't know if you look at the notice sheet. I hope you do. It's produced for a reason, to help you with following and to give you some things to pray for. Um, But if you have looked at the notice sheet, my intention was to view this chapter from three angles. Look at Jeremiah's experience of this chapter, then Christ's experience of this chapter, and then our experience of this chapter. And so I worked at preparing this, and I got to the end of the Jeremiah's experience and thought, oh, I think that's already the sort of normal length for a sermon here. And although I, as a child, had to sit through sermons that were an hour long, I thought I'd better not try it here. So what I'm going to do is just tonight preach my first point, and then you'll have to come back next week for the next two. Christ's experience and our experience. And that's rather messed up my structure, because I'm just preaching my first point. I haven't got the nice... I like to have threes. So... um, Hopefully, I think that's Daniel Simpson there behind that screen, is going to be on the ball and put up on the screen things to help us follow as uh, my structure's got messed up. It, it means also you'll have to come back next week for seeing Christ and seeing our response. But I hope we'll manage to follow just looking this evening at Jeremiah's experience of this chapter. It's just so rich. I can't even go through all of that, actually, because there's just so much here. So let's get into it. I've just said Jeremiah's experience, but did Jeremiah write Lamentations? Well, Lamentations doesn't say, actually. It nowhere says who wrote it. So we can't be definite. 
And we shouldn't insist and fall out with anyone who says differently. But the traditional view is that it's Jeremiah. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be. There's, there's nothing that makes it actually it couldn't be Jeremiah. And there are actually features of the book that fit very well with Jeremiah. So I'm going to stick with the traditional view and refer to Jeremiah as the person who wrote this. By the way, I think that the Christian attitude is stick with what's been believed and done down through church history unless you've got good reason not to. Not the other way round. You might say, let's let's get rid of what's been done and believed in the past and let's, unless we've got good reason to stick with it. Now, I think the Christian attitude is you respect the past and stick with it unless you've got good reason not to. OK, let's look at Jeremiah's experience. And I think we'll have our first. I'm going to begin with Jeremiah's suffering. Verses one to 20 is Jeremiah's suffering. I'm not going to go into it much. Because we've had two weeks of seeing suffering in Lamentations. But we do need to go into it a little because we mustn't rip the comfort out of its context. Very important, we don't rip the comfort out of its context. Because actually we'll reduce the comfort then. So, Lamentations describes suffering in Jerusalem in 588 BC. It had been besieged and attacked by the Babylonian army. And you have all the horror of war and starvation and disease and captivity and destruction. And we've heard that described over the past two weeks. And that continues in chapter 3, but with a difference. The difference is it's made personal. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath. I am the man. Now chapter 1 and chapter 2 has been describing what God has done to Jerusalem and the people of Judah. And it's sometimes referred to a woman, but that woman wasn't an individual woman. It's, it's Jerusalem pictured as a woman. But now it's made personal. It's me, says Jeremiah. I am the man who has suffered these things. How can he claim, I am the man, when it was a nation and a city? Well, because he lived in that city. And so he felt the hunger, physically, in his stomach. And he almost certainly had his house torn down, because the Babylonians systematically tore all the houses down. And he suffered as a civilian caught up in a war. He experienced it. But he can also say, I am the man, because as you read through Lamentations, so many of the sufferings are emotional rather than physical. And Jeremiah wept, he's known as the weeping prophet, because he loved his neighbours. And he felt their pain. And he loved God's people, and God's city, and God's temple. And so he wept. And his heart was broken as he saw these people and temple and city destroyed. And so in chapter three, he describes his suffering. I'm not going to go through it because we've gone through a lot about suffering the last couple of weeks. Let me give you three examples, though. Verse one. Verse one. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Now, does the word rod. You think of a place in the Bible where we read about a rod. Samuel's giving me a look. Can you think of somewhere? Any children want to tell us? Rod. 
Is it in Proverbs? Probably is. I was thinking, sorry, all these guess what I'm thinking questions are not good, aren't they? But surely the most famous place is Psalm 23. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And it is here the same word for the shepherd's rod, which is supposed to be a comfort to the sheep. But in verse 1, it's as if it's as if the shepherd has, has turned nasty and he's beating the sheep. That's what Jeremiah says it feels like to him. And in verse 7 to 9, he changes his metaphor. And he says, it's as if God has put me in prison. I am captive in prison. And it's as if God has purposely made the prison, look verse 9, it's made out of the thickest stone. So that if I cry out, nobody outside can hear me. And it seems as if my prayers are blocked and God's not hearing me. And then we have from verse 10 onwards a whole load of pictures of God seems like an enemy. He is shooting arrows at me, verse 12 and verse 13. He's like an enemy bear or a lion. And I was walking down the path, minding my own business, and he just leapt out at me and dragged me off and mangled me. He's like a vicious fighter, verse 13, who's broken my teeth. Well, there's much more, but I'm just giving you a little flavour of uh, a reminder It's all in the context of intense suffering. In the Christian Conference Centre, there was a painting on the wall. And the painting was of a lovely looking cottage nestled between two hills. And it was surrounded by a beautiful English garden. And overhead, the sky was blue. And it was also picturesque. And at the bottom of the painting was written Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, that's the sort of artwork we expect in Christian pictures. If you buy a a poster from a Christian bookshop with a verse like Lamentations 3, verse 22 on it, that's the sort of picture you get on it. Calm, peaceful, picturesque, looks beautiful. But actually, the picture surrounding Lamentations 3, verse 22, is a picture of war. When those artists put that verse on a poster and paint a scene, they ought to paint a city in ruins and smoke coming up from it and dead bodies lying in the streets and starving children sitting begging. That's what they ought to paint because that is the background for these verses. I doubt it would sell so well in Christian bookshops, but it would represent the Bible better. So that's the background, Jeremiah's suffering. But I want to move on and now spend the rest of our time on Jeremiah's faith. Next point, Jeremiah's faith, verses 19 to 33. Let's go through verses 19 to 33 and see something of Jeremiah's faith. Uh, There's loads here. We're not going to cover it all. But we'll have, first of all, verses 19 to 21, two types of remembering. Two types of remembering. The first type is a flashback type of remembering. Think of it this way. When a war is finished and the fighting is over, And the soldiers are back from the front and all's at peace now. But it's not at peace for the soldier. What do they get? 
I've got a friend who was in the Paris and he went to Afghanistan and I never heard anything about it from him. And I didn't question him because he obviously didn't want to talk about it. But I hear now he's got these flashbacks and he's certainly not at peace. And the soldiers being out of Afghanistan doesn't mean that he's happy. No, he's got these flashbacks. It just keeps coming back to him. And that's what you've got in verse 19. And 20, it's that sort of remembering. I remember my afflictions and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is down within me. We call this some sort of trauma. But next we have a different type of remembering, completely different. Verse 21. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Yet this I call to mind. Do you see, this isn't a flashback. This is something he's actively doing. I'm going to call something to mind. Actually, a clumsy but accurate translation would be this. It's rather clumsy, but it's accurate. This I cause to return to my heart. Now, although that's clumsily put, do do you get that? I'm going to cause this to return to my heart. In other words, I'm going to work at what my heart is focusing on. I'm not going to listen to myself. I'm going to speak to myself. Those who were here about a month or so ago might remember Psalm 42 and 43, where the psalmist, he was listening to himself and he stopped and said, I'm going to talk to myself now. In other words, I'm not going to let my mind just run with its thoughts. I'm going to get a grip on what those thoughts are. I'm going to try to put out the flashbacks and change my focus onto this. Verse 21, this I call to mind. But what's the this? What is he going to get his mind onto? Here, Daniel's our next point. God's character, 32 to 24. God's character. Verses 22 to 24. By the way, you might notice I'm taking this in three verse sections. And the reason is it's a poem that comes in three verse sections. And each set of three verses is three lines that begin with the same letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's all very cleverly structured. All put together so well. Now, there is a translation issue with verse 22. What Bible translation have you got? If you've got the NIV, it says in verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. I think the ESV says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Something like that. I'm getting some nods. So there's a translation issue. It could be one or the other. The ESV one is probably better in this case. But if you listen to both of them, you probably agree. They're hardly any different. There isn't much in it. And they both tell us he remembers God's love. And he thinks that is the key. He thinks this love is relevant to me, even in the ruins of Jerusalem. And both tell us he thinks God's love hasn't stopped. In fact, it doesn't stop. In fact, it cannot stop because God is love. Right from deep inside. Verse 22 is saying God's love cannot stop because he is love right from deep inside. Where do I get the deep inside from? Well, look at verse 22, this compassion's word. Do you remember where this compassions word comes from? I've mentioned this quite a lot of times over the years. Compassions, the word comes from the word for bowels. Bowels. There was a rather unfortunate title 
by someone down through church history writing about God's love for us that was called Bowels Opened because it's God opening his compassions to us. A bit of an unfortunate title, but it comes from the word for bowels because it's saying coming from deep inside God is, is this felt love. Like we feel things deep down here in the gut. Gets to me in the gut. And this love, we're told in verse 22, it never fails. In fact, verse 23, these compassions are new every morning. New every morning. That doesn't mean they didn't exist the previous night and they've just started existing now. That's not what it means by new every morning. It means God is always renewing his compassion to us. He's always renewing it. Every single day, he's renewing it. And and God's always renewing compassion means that we're not trapped in the past. That's a really important point. It means we're not trapped in the past. And the people of Jerusalem weren't trapped in the past. At a conference, I went to listen to a preacher who I really respected. And there at this conference, the preacher said he believed in ghosts. <laughs> oh, I started to wonder, was I right to respect this preacher? He said he'd met Christians who were haunted. <laughs> what on earth is going on with this preacher? He said he'd met Christians who were haunted by their past sins and they felt trapped by them and they felt guilty for them and they thought God was holding them against those sins against them. And he said they're being haunted by imaginary ghosts and they are imaginary ghosts because those sins have been buried with Jesus Christ and God has new mercies for us every morning. Every single morning, there are new mercies for us. Whatever yesterday or last year or even last hour may have been like, there are new mercies. And that means the covenant is still valid. Children, do you know about the covenant? Do you know what a covenant is? Covenant is a solemn promise or agreement between God and humans. And God made this solemn agreement with Israel, this solemn promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's what verse 24 is about. Verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. My portion. Children, there's cake for tea. And uh, there's several of you sitting at the table and the cake is cut up and you are given a slice and that's your portion. Your portion is the bit for you. But with the Israelites, a portion was much more serious and better than a piece of cake. Their portion was the land was cut up and given to them, and they'd inherit different bits of it. And here he's saying, God is my inheritance, and he is my land and my home, and he is my security, and in fact, he belongs to me. Think of that. The God who made everything belongs to me, and I belong to him. He's my portion. In other words, he's saying... The covenant is still valid. It hasn't all been ripped up and gone away. And all of that means, as he says next in verse 24, it's worth waiting for God. Here's our next bit, Daniel. This is actually two of the three verse sections. I'm only going to look at verse 25 to 27. All of that means it's worth waiting for God. Oh. 
It's worth waiting God for God because God's love doesn't stop. Because the covenant is still valid, and that means the destruction of Jerusalem cannot be the end. It can't be the end. There must be better that's worth waiting for. That means what's happened to Jerusalem, devastating as it is, isn't final judgment. Because the covenant said after destruction there would be restoration. And so God will restore Jerusalem, and he will bring his people back to himself. So verse 25, Jeremiah says, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. In other words, God has got something good for those who wait for him. It's going to be worth waiting. God's got something good in store. But not only that, he then says the waiting itself is good. By the way, verse 25, 26 and 27 all begin with the word good. It's part of this alphabetic pattern. All begin with the word good. And verse 26, the waiting is good. Good it is to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, I don't think we're very good at waiting. Are you? I'm not. All sorts of ways we don't like waiting. When I was a teenager, I had a computer called a ZX Spectrum 48K. That means it had 48K of memory, which I'm told now would be laughable. And if I wanted to play a game on it, I had to put a tape, a cassette in and press play. And you'd have to wait. All these lines would go up and down the screen. And it would take so long, you'd go away and do something else. And you'd come back and it would say, error at line 4672. Rewind the tape, do it again and wait for it. Ah, waiting. That was annoying. Now what happens? You want something on your computer, you press a button, and if it doesn't start in four seconds, this computer's so slow. This computer needs cleaning up. This computer's out of date. I've had to wait for four seconds for it to load up. We don't like waiting, do we? We want everything instantly. Why don't we like waiting? Because it feels like we're not doing anything. It feels unproductive. And because we like to think we're in control. Unwillingness to wait says, I'm in control, I must get things done in my time. Waiting says, I'm not in control. It doesn't all depend on me, and God sets the timetable. Verse 26 can say, it's not just God's got something good in the future. The waiting now can be good. It can actually be productive because waiting can produce patience and humility and trust in God. Even the waiting can be good. Why? Why can Jeremiah wait and think the waiting's good and the end point will be good? Well, we come back to the foundation. This is verses 31 to 33, the foundation. Why is Jeremiah willing to wait? Well, the next section gives us the reason. By the way, verse 31 and 32 and 33 in Hebrew each begin with four, four, four. Not the number four, but F-O-R. In other words, because. Here's the reason. What's the reason? Well, it's all back to God's character. 
It's all about his character. By the way, I've referred to this being a poem and it all having a clever structure. And the structure actually makes verse 31 to 33 the centre of the whole book of Lamentations. It's the very centre of the book. It's the heart of the book. And it's all about God's character. Now, I don't know what sandwiches you like, but forget BLT or prawn mayo or whatever it might be. Verse 31 to 33 is the best sandwich you could get. In the middle is he will show compassion. And it's sandwiched between because he doesn't cast off forever. And on the other side, he doesn't willingly inflict. That's the best sandwich you can get. In the middle, he will show compassion. Why is Jeremiah confident? It's sandwiched between two reasons. He doesn't cast off forever. And he doesn't willingly inflict, afflict. Let's, let's think about those two sides of the sandwich. Verse 31. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. He's saying God isn't angry forever. God is not angry forever. Hey, do you remember verse 22? Contrast that with verse 22. Verse 22. He does love forever. Verse 31, he is not angry forever. God's love and anger are not equal opposites. No, far from it. God does love forever. That's a repeated message of the Bible. Well, you get that throughout the Bible. God does love forever. Let me read you some parts of Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Did you hear that? In case not, verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Did you see the repetition? In case not, verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Anyone failed to spot it yet? In case, verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Anyone asleep at the moment? I'll give you verse 5. Who by his understanding makes the heaven, made the heavens, his love endures forever. And if you haven't got it yet, it's 26 times, but I won't read them all. I hope you got the message. His love endures forever. Contrast that with Psalm 103. I'll just read you one verse. Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. Or let me read you another prophecy. Micah, Micah chapter 7. Micah 7. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God's love and his anger are not equal opposites. God is angry with sin, but he is not anger. He is never described in the Bible as being anger, although he is angry with sin. The Bible does tell us he is love. God is love. His love endures forever, his anger doesn't. Let's look at the other side of the sandwich. Do you remember the sandwiches, verse 31 to 33? The other side of the sandwich, verse 33, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. It is literally, he does not afflict from the heart. 
He does not afflict from the heart. Now, notice that tells you he does afflict. He does cause suffering. God does cause trouble. He does cause things to come into our lives that we wish weren't there. He does do it. Lamentations has insisted on that. In fact, look at verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. I, Jeremiah says, have been afflicted, but it didn't come from God's heart. He did it, but not from the heart. Now, we've got to tread carefully here, because it's not as if God does things that are out of character, or God is forced into things he didn't really want to do. No, it isn't that. So we've got to tread carefully. There's, there's mystery here we can't fully work out. But it's a little like this. Think of a father who loves his daughter, and he wants her to grow up honest and trustworthy. So when she lies, when he, when he finds that she's told a lie, he punishes her and he gives her a smack. But that doesn't come, the, the pain inflicted does not come from his heart. He does not enjoy inflicting pain. He doesn't want to do it. But the result of it, the teaching his daughter to be honest and trustworthy, that does come from his heart. And it's a little like that with God. Because, of course, he is our father. We've got to be careful because he's a much better father than us and he's never caught in a situation he wished he hadn't got into. But if affliction doesn't come from his heart. There used to be a pe- people around in church history called the Puritans. They were Christians in England and America in the uh, 17th century. And people think of them as these sour-faced people, always dressed in black, always looking miserable. Uh, in fact, someone defined a Puritan as someone who has the haunting fear that somebody somewhere might be enjoying themselves. That's what they said Puritans like. Hey, it's complete slander. It's utter slander. In fact, there was... Um, They've fallen for propaganda, actually, that if you like church, if you like history, you might know it was Charles II put out this propaganda because he was anti the Puritans. It's total propaganda. The Puritans had a big emphasis on joy. And they had this phrase. Their phrase was, judgment is God's strange work. Judgment is God's strange work, but mercy is his delight. Oh, yes, they believed God judges. They took it very seriously. They said God's judgment follows from his goodness, his goodness in reaction against sin and suffering, which he is determined to drive out of his world. But he doesn't delight in it. No, he doesn't delight in judgment. Like he delights in love. Judgment is his strange work. God's character here in this sandwich, verse 31 to 33, is the foundation that allows Jeremiah to wait for God. He's confident God's got good plans for him. And he's confident even in the middle of a ruined city and in the middle of a life that looks ruined. Well, there's Jeremiah's experience. I haven't gone through it all, but uh, I wanted then to move on to Christ's experience and then on to our experience. But you'll have to wait till next week. Come back next week to hear that. That means we haven't seen Christ. And that, that's always a bad thing if you haven't seen Christ when you come to church. But remember, he is the image of the invisible God. 
What are these characteristics of God like in practice? Look at Jesus. What would it be like if this love became human? Look at Jesus. How can we know these aren't just nice words on a page to make us feel better? Uh, and that they actually mean something in practice? Look at Jesus. So, yes, I haven't shown you that, but, but I'm sure we have, in a sense, been shown Jesus. Because he is these in human form and in practice. It also means I haven't told you how we should respond to all this. But put it like this. My aim is that we would see God's character, see what he's like at heart and have confidence in that. Not just here now, but next week, if you're conscious you've sinned again. Next month, if trouble hits you and you're going through a storm confidence like jeremiah there he is remember not in the christian artwork of the picturesque cottage but in the middle of a ruined city and he's confident in god's character put it this way great is thy faithfulness O god my father there is no shadow of turning in thee thou changest not thy compassions they fail not as thou hast been thou forever wilt be. My aim is that we don't just sing that at church when things are going well, but we believe it and still sing it when we're going through lamentations-like experiences. So let's sing it now. Let's stay sitting down and sing.